third week of Advent, we are going to continue in the theme of this season. And we are going to look today at a prophecy in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 11. And so, if just to trace back three weeks, the last three weeks, the first week we really looked at God's intention for the creation of mankind and His intention to communicate with us and to even dwell with us. And so we were uniquely created to uh, relate to God in a special way, but also even to just be fully in His presence, of which we lost the opportunity for at the fall. Last week we really looked at the problem that this led to by looking at the wickedness of the earth that we see just prior to the flood in Genesis chapter 6. And now today we're going to look at Isaiah, and Isaiah is full of prophecies about the coming Messiah. And what is interesting about this is that through these prophecies, we'll we'll see a prophecy, and then we'll hear about judgment. And then we might see another prophecy about Christ, and then we'll hear about coming judgment. And then we might hear another prophecy about Jesus, and then we'll hear about the wickedness of the earth, or how... Israel has fallen. And just a context, the context of where we are, we'll be looking at chapter 11. And just to give you an idea of what's facing the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel at this time, is that this is the time where they've recently been divided. There's the north and the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom has abandoned the the Davidic throne, the worship of God. So there's a division in the kingdom. Also, there is a threat on southern, the southern kingdom, Judah, from Assyria, which is a powerful nation. And there's a threat there of being overtaken by Assyria. In fact, this chapter is uh, a prophecy in the time of King Ahaz, who has essentially decided to join forces with Assyria. Instead of depending on the Lord, depending on another evil nation. Exile is looming. So the defeat of the southern kingdom is looming. The people will be exiled. And so the reason I mention all of that is to say that these prophecies really tell us about the gospel. Because they speak of the coming Messiah in the midst of all this mess and rebellion and disobedience and refusal to... Return to the Lord. My son Samuel Jake is so known for his fits. This is really, at this point in his life, this is what defines him, just pitching fits. So this is a constant thing with him. We're working through it. We pray a lot. And when, when this happens, he'll be disciplined, but he'll be put in, in, he'll be put in his room. And there, this is a common thing that I say to him as he is screaming by being put in his room, doesn't want to be there, wants to be out with us, I'll say, Samuel Jacob, when you stop screaming and when you can apologize, I'll come back in here. And he's still screaming and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I tell him, when you get your act together, I will come in. But what Isaiah tells us is that the Messiah's coming. It, that's it. He doesn't say, when you get your act together, he says, the Messiah is coming. So what we see in Isaiah is the gospel so very clear because we hear about all this judgment. We hear about, we hear about Israel's defiance. But Isaiah continues to tell us, the Messiah is coming. 
And so let's look at Isaiah 11. I'll look at verses 1 through 12. I'll read verses 1 through 12, acknowledging this as we read that the coming Messiah represents brokenness, humility, and conquering peace. Let me pray for our time. Father, we turn now to you, to your word, and then we ask for your spirit and so that through your word and by your spirit, your grace would come into our hearts in a powerful way. And Father, give us the ability to even grasp that, that you use your word and your spirit in our fallen hearts, in our fallen lives to bring us close to you, to allow us to uh, embrace you and the gospel. And so we pray for that now in Christ's name. Amen. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of, under, uh, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel, and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Let me just stop for a moment just to mention what we've read in verses 2 through 5 is of a coming being person that we can't relate to. He'll be all of these things that we cannot be. And then we start in verse 6 to see a world that we can't relate to. And so we're seeing a person that's coming that is so different than we are, and then we see a world that follows so different than what we know. So verse, verse 6, And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire in his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four Corners of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. So let's ask this question Who does this Messiah come from? And of course, we should rightly understand that this Messiah comes from God. 
that he is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. But it's important for us to see what Isaiah is talking about here, that he wants us to see in another sense who the Messiah comes from. And so as we look at this text, at the very beginning of chapter 11, we read that this is a, he will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So first of all, who is Jesse? And we know from many Old Testament texts, and then even in the New Testament, we find that Jesse is spoken of. And we see that Jesse is the father of King David. And so Isaiah obviously has it right to say that Jesse is an ancestor of Jesus because we know that Jesus is the offspring of David, even referred to as the son of David. So for him to come from Jesse is correct genealogically. Why does he name Jesus, though, as an offspring of Jesse instead of, say here, David? or even Solomon, or Boaz, or even Abraham? Why does he want to focus on the person of Jesse? At our first home, and I've used this example before, I think it can apply to a number of different things, but at our first home, Elena and I had a tree in our front yard in the center of our yard. It was a cherry tree. And not long after I was there, I recognized there was some kind of bad disease in the limbs of the tree. And... So I began to just start cutting these limbs off where I saw this disease in the limbs. So I would cut these limbs off. Soon after I did that, I started to see that this disease was even further into the tree. And so I began to try to cut more and more. And soon I got to where if I continued cutting, I would begin to lose more and more of the tree. So I just left it alone with the disease there. Now, not we soon moved, not... Not too long after, well, it was a couple of years after we moved, we were in the area, and Elena and I decided to drive back by the home and see it. And one thing that we noticed was the tree was completely down to the ground. Only a stump was there, and the owner of the house happened to be outside, and we just mentioned who we were, and, and we asked about the tree. And she said the tree had died and that it had to be cut down to the stump. Imagine trying to cut a disease out of a tree. And as you hack off limbs, you see the disease is still there. Then you see a portion of the tree that may look good, but under it there's still disease. And so you have to continue hacking it off. And you keep hacking and hacking and you realize that you have, you're going to have to continue going down to the stump as the person who bought our house Realize, And this is what Isaiah is doing when he wants us to know that a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. He is cutting off the kingly tree. And he is hacking away. Here's Manasseh. He's hacking King Manasseh off. He's cutting Hezekiah off. He's even cutting off good kings like Solomon, like David. Because until he gets down to the stump, the shoot will not grow. But now that he's there, now that he's there, we see that the shoot of Christ is coming up from the stump of Jesse. But not before a lot of powerful people, a lot of pride, a lot of evil within the kingdom was cut off 
till the point where we get to the lowly and the humble shepherd Jesse. So who is Jesse? And when we answer that question, really a way to see this is that he is the first nobody that we get to. As we go through the generations of Christ all the way back, we have to go back to Jesse to get to a true nobody. And so Isaiah knew that that was necessary. He knew that to see a real resemblance of Jesus, we needed to go back to the poor and to the common, to the no royal blood, to the sheep herder. And that's what Isaiah did. I remember listening to my father-in-law speak to a group of construction workers one day, and he was sharing the gospel with them. And he was talking to them about the person of Jesus. And I remember these men standing around, and these were men that were brick masons. These were welders. These were uh, people that poured concrete. And he was standing there, and he said, Jesus came as a carpenter. He came as a common man like me and like you. And there was a man, that, he told me there was a man that come, came up to him afterwards and he said, I want to know somebody who was willing to become like me so that he could know me. And this is what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is taking Jesus back to Jesse the sheep herder. Not the king, not the royal robes, but the one who is herding sheep. And the reason he does this is because this evil and this pride and this wealth and this make a God out of myself disorder was standing in the way of Isaiah and the Messiah. And he needed, he needed this to be cut down. None of these kings could be Isaiah's mediator. None could be your mediator. They had to be cut out. The Messiah was to come forth from the stump of Jesse. And as we read through, we see this even further and we, and we begin to see even a, with more clarity as we continue through the chapter of 11 and as we answer this second question, how is he to be recognized, this Messiah who will come? So let's just go down through these verses starting in verse 2 and let's see what they are telling us here. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So this is how we will recognize that. The Spirit of God. There will be a unification of God in the person who comes. We see He will be wise. He will have understanding. We see He will be able to perfectly counsel and He will be strong. As we look down through these verses, we see that He will not judge based on how someone looks or how their clothes look or how they present themselves. He will look beyond all of that to see the true heart that has been given to people by God. He will be righteous in how he treats the poor. He will decide with equity for the meek. Or in other words, when we see that, what, he, what we are told is that when Jesus comes, he will place value on the people that are meek. He will show favor to them. We also see that his word will one day cover the earth. Which means that, and this is, this is an unbelievable thing to a person like Isaiah. But what this is saying is, is that his word will go to the nations. His name will go to the nations. And understand that the nations surrounding Isaiah hated God, the God of Israel. But what Isaiah is saying that there will be a day where the name of the Lord will cover the earth. 
and his righteousness will cover the earth. And then look at verse 5. We're told in verse 5 that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what we are seeing is Isaiah is drawing the connection between a belt which gives a symbol of authority or of conquering or of being exalted. And so we can think in our day of a, someone who wins a boxing match and they're given a belt to raise above their heads to claim that they have conquered someone, that they are the champion, that they have been exalted. But Jesus' belt is not a belt of gold or of jewels. Instead, we're told it is a belt of righteousness and faithfulness, meaning He reigns and He is conquered and He's authoritative and He's the head because of His righteousness and because of His faithfulness. And He conquers and He establishes authority over the enemy because of His faithfulness to die for us. This is what Isaiah was telling everyone to look for. Not a royal king like Solomon. Not a conquering king like David. Go further back. We are to look for a shepherd. We are to look for a shepherd of righteousness, of humility, and of faithfulness. We are to look for someone who is willing to leave the throne, who is willing to leave the camp to go after the lost sheep. We're to look for one who is willing to die outside the gate. This is who we are to look for. We are to look for one who would throw a banquet and invite those that would never have the ability to return the favor and invite him to a banquet. We are to look for the one who would wash the feet of those that should have been washing His feet. And the one who would be faithful to go to the cross even when He knew it would be unbearable. Even when He knew it would cause the Father's wrath to be poured out upon Him. We are to look to the one who knew that when He is hanging on the cross, His Father, the one who He was connected to, the one who He was committed to, the one who He would not do anything unless He was telling Him to do it. He was willing to go and be placed in a position where the Father would turn His head from Him because when He looked upon Him, what He saw was wretchedness, sinfulness, filth, disgust. He was unworthy to look upon by the Most High God. This is who we're to look for. The one who is willing to do this. This is to be our Savior. This is the one that Isaiah hoped for. This was the one that he was to turn to. And that meant that the others had to be cut down. They could not be the one. I want to ask this as well. What does his his coming accomplish? And we see this in verses 6 through 12 as we read through about this world that we do not know. This world that seems impossible. This this world that seems to be a fantasy land. But this is what His coming will ultimately accomplish. The coming of the Messiah will accomplish what Adam never could. And when you look at Romans chapter 5, what Paul is wanting us to see is a comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. 
between our first parent and then the Son of God. And Paul wants us to see what the two faced and then what the two accomplished. Because what we see is that Adam ushered in sin and corruption. And this happened in a world that was very good. A world that was in unity. It was a world of life. It was a world that was fit for the dwelling of God. It was a world where God created so that He could dwell with man. This was Adam's world. And we are to understand, especially as we look at Isaiah, that this was a world where the wolf dwelled with the lamb and the lion did not eat the ox. Instead, he ate alongside the ox. And we are to see that in this world, children would have been welcomed here and given free reign even over the whole of the cobra in this world. There was no strong and weak. There was no good and bad. There was no conquered having to surrender to the conqueror. There was no ongoing battle where man was looking to overpower man and there was this constant struggle. So in other words, Adam came into a world that gave him every chance to succeed and he passed down failure. He failed to maintain perfect harmony and unity. And and this is what we are to see about the person of Adam. That as our representative, We can often see Adam as our representative who failed us. We say, why, why should we be responsible for what Adam has done? But as our representative, what we are told is that Adam did exactly what we would have done. That if we were put in his position, when we see the person of Adam, we are seeing exactly what we would have done. We would have taken a good world and then we would have corrupted it. Romans 5 also wants to see that there's a second Adam that came into a world corrupted. A world that at, by this point in time it was not fit for the dwelling of God and yet Jesus still came into this world as God. It was a world of lies and a world of death. A world where we now fear for our children. A world where our children do not have free reign because we cannot trust this world with them. This is a world that does not know God. A world that did not recognize God when He came in the flesh. When He looked the world right in the face. This is the world that Jesus entered into. It was completely against Him. But the difference is, is that what we see is that Jesus won. We see a completely different outcome. He came into a different world. And we see a completely different outcome. He accomplished something that no one else could. Something that Kevin read to us today in our catechism. He had to come and fulfill the law as God and man. Where Adam introduced the world to corruption... Jesus will rid the world of it. This is what we read about in Isaiah 11. This is what is at work with our Savior. He's going to rid the world of all of corruption. Adam covered us with sin. Jesus did something very differently as our new representative. He chose to cover himself with our sin. Adam passes it down. Jesus takes it on. 
Adam corrupted our hearts, but Jesus chose to do a work in them, regenerating our hearts. If you read Genesis 3, as we looked at two weeks ago, you will see that what Adam did is he stirred up. He ushered in the wrath of God. Jesus satisfied it. Adam's sin killed him as God promised it would do. Our sin killed, Jesus let sin kill him. Willingly let it happen. This is all to say that the coming of Christ into a broken, corrupt, fearful, uncertain world means the coming of something great. His life and death accomplish something that can never be lost. We can never lose it. He has accomplished a new heaven and a new earth. And this is something that He is getting prepared for us now because of Him. And we see this in verse 10. Because of Him, Jesus will one day fill the earth with the knowledge of the, of the, of the Lord. And it will be a very different world then. We're going to see a very different world. In fact, what we are going to see is a world that is fit for God to dwell in next to man. God will dwell in this world because of the coming of Christ. So three things as we close, three things that I hope we can take away from this passage and and as we follow these three questions or these three points. In order for Isaiah to confess the coming of Christ, a lot had to be taken down and cut down. God works very similarly with us. For Christ to grow in us, for, for us to find our identity inside the person of Christ, for us, for us to even understand what it means to be in Christ or in union with Christ, many things have to be cut out for us to grasp that concept. And there's a good chance that God is chopping away at you. There's a good chance that God will have to chop away at you. Removing sin, removing pride, removing fear, removing self. And many times, many of you have experienced this, this is a very painful time of cutting and ripping and tearing and removing Here's just some pastoral counsel, and this is to myself and something that I struggle with, mess up with, need to hear, even hard for me to hear. We need to be prepared for that. So pastoral counsel, counsel would be get ready for it because, one, it's got to happen. Two, it's going to happen. And for God to remove things or cut things down, well, let me put it this way. When God removes things and cuts things down and we're not prepared for it, we will fight against it. We'll try to take that which was cut off and put it back in place. Or we'll try to hold on to things that God is obviously taking away. But when we're prepared for it, we'll turn in repentance. We'll have a heart of repentance. And it welcomes the Holy Spirit. And so here's where we need to be to be prepared for this work of removal and for this work of cutting down. To see that there are things that we think are good that need to be taken out of our life. They need, we need to
God to remove those things from us. And by His grace, He will do that. Secondly, remember how we would recognize the Messiah. There were many characteristics that we went over that Isaiah mentioned in verses 2 through 5, but the ultimate source would, would be that God's Spirit would rest upon Him. And we see this prophecy fulfilled in Matthew 4, Luke 4, that the Holy Spirit of God fell down upon Jesus the Son. So, this is to tell us that when God is cutting things from you, when He is breaking you down, when He is emptying you, He does not leave us that way, but instead what we can know is that by His grace He will pour His Spirit into our life. He doesn't leave us empty. So, in other words, He doesn't take away our idols and take away these things and sin only to leave us with nothing. And that's often our problem. We think that if this gets removed, we'll have nothing. We'll be empty. We'll, we'll, we will not be able to function. But what the gospel tells us and what the dissension of the Holy Spirit on the church tells us is that as God removes things and takes things away and calls us to repentance, what He's promising is a filling of the Holy Spirit. Or in, One way to see it is that He would release His Spirit into us and into our hearts where other things dwelled where other things lived and took root and the Spirit begins to work in a powerful way. Now, Jesus had such an outpouring because He had no sin and He had no idols. There was nothing that He delighted in above the Father. So, we know that He suffered. We know that He experienced pain. We know that Jesus experienced loss. We know that He experienced all of those things that we experienced while He walked on earth and therefore He's sympathetic with us and He even experienced more than that on the cross. But here's what is true is that He also simultaneously was the most joyful person ever. He had maximum joy because it came through the Holy Spirit. God blessed him with that. And the joy of Christ through the Holy Spirit comes to the trusting Christian. It comes to the trusting Christian who is willing to let these things go and turn unto Christ. So what is the result of this tree that Isaiah gave us a picture of? The tree that gets cut down to the stump. The tree that once had kings and fame and power and beauty and riches and even wisdom. This is what verse 10 tells us. That in that day, the root of Jesse, so remember verse 1, the shoot of Jesse. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire in his resting place, shall be Glorious. So what we have is an offspring of Jesse who is also an ancestor of Jesse. So when Jesus came to earth as a baby, and this is what we're to see from this prophecy that is fulfilled in the New Testament, that when Jesus came to earth as a baby, the Creator was born. Do you see all the mystery 
in that. But this Creator was born so that God could die. So that He could be cut down. So His birth, what we celebrate, what we celebrate, again, not a beautiful baby that's wrapped in a bow. What we celebrate is that His birth put Him in a position where death was even possible. Completely impossible unless Jesus comes as a baby. The cross tells us He was cut down. But the resurrection tells us that He is exalted. Cut down, but now towering over all, which means, as Handel tells us, that He will reign forever and ever. Let's pray.